He could lift a horse. He invented the hack squat. He drank a disturbing amount of milk. And no matter what George Lurich said, he was the greatest Greco-Roman wrestler of his day. Today, we talk about the Russian lion, George Hackenschmidt. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. OMG, as the kids say on the internet, we are back for another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. My name's Nick Gossard. I am one of the hosts, and I am here with the Rodan to my Ghidra. It's Jongo Bronson. How the hell are you? Capital old chap, welcome to the people on this episodic archaeological adventure through time and pro wrestling space. I wish I had that kind of energy at any point in my life. For those of you who have listened before, welcome back. We're glad to have you. Thanks for hitting the download button. Hopefully you're hitting like, you're giving us five stars. Hopefully you're giving us a review. It's not for us. You know, we we, we like it, but it's mostly for the algorithm so more people can find our podcast. If you've never been here, if this is your first visit to Crazy Town, if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're glad you're here. What we do here is we are delving into the history, the mythology of professional wrestling. We're not talking about the 80s. We're talking about the 1880s. We're talking about the 1890s. We're talking about the days when it was a legitimate sport. At least that's where we are now. We are in the 1890s, the early 1900s. Eventually, we'll start skipping around. But for now, we are laying a foundation so everybody can kind of say, holy crap, this is where it all came from. This is what was the genesis of pro wrestling as we know today. And also given to you in the form it was passed down back in this time. We were talking before TV, before the motion picture. The the oral tradition of professional wrestling stories and history and lore is is the greatest, you know, it's 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 maddening, man. It's stranger than fiction. And these are real stories that have been passed down and pieced together from bits of information written down from time to time, maybe described by someone that maybe knew what they were looking at and maybe they didn't. And it's a fascinating deep dive into such a, a interesting, I don't even know, what, how would you categorize it? Maniac? Collection of maniacs? Oh, easily. And he made, and Chago made an important point here about piecing this together because a lot of you will listen to this and say, you know, I read on the internet this version of that story, or I don't know if that happened. And you know what? You may be right. We may be right because this is mythology as much as it is history. We're piecing together from oral traditions and old newspaper clippings. And like the game of telephone, a story changes over time. So we're doing our best here. Hopefully we're as close to the truth as possible, but in some cases, you never know. And feel free to get get a proverbial shovel and join in the dig deep dive with us and send us any information. If you find a a tidbit that we overlooked or was conflicting to what we want to know, we want to know about it. Tag us on the social medias and send send it our way, old chap. Because if you hear a better version and you want to correct us, first of all, how dare you? But second of all, We like learning as well. So yeah, send it our way. And speaking of interaction, thank you for everybody with their kind reviews and kind words and the occasional five-star review. Hopefully those keep pouring in so we can keep making this magic. Last week, we went deep into the life of Frank Gotch, possibly the greatest American pro wrestler of all time. Sorry, Dan Gable, but it's true. He was a star. He was an amazing athlete. He was the champion at a time when pro wrestling was at its biggest as a legitimate sport. 
Yes. Sophistication at the turn of the century. He was the man at the, at the helm of the entire business and industry, and he was a true world-class competitor and, a, and a, a great ambassador of the sport, man. He was the right guy at the right time, and he really became truly iconic in this business. But there is no such thing as an icon without a nemesis, and that is who we're going to discuss today when we talk about the Russian lion, George Hackenschmidt. A monster among men. Hackenschmidt feared from nation to nation, and he would prove to be a worthy adversary for the American hero. George Hackenschmidt was born in Dorpit, Russia, which is now located in modern-day Estonia and called Tartu, on August 1st, 1877. While culturally he was Estonian, he was referred to as the Russian Lion. And if you were picturing some... Ivan Drago-style character, a just a gigantic, strong machine of a Russian man, you are not too far off. And again, it's ironic that he was so identified with Russia. He was Estonian, and he was the son of a Baltic German and an Estonian Swede, and spent most of his life living in England. But he embraced that Russian identity wholeheartedly. Yes, this is a hard man from a hard time in a hard place. We're talking about before indoor plumbing, man, when electricity was not distributed uh, to every man across, across you know, Russia. He, he probably came up in times of unbelievable hardship and famine that, that people today couldn't even comprehend. The, the level of, of tenacity and viciousness that those kind of hard circumstance and upbringing create killers look at look at uh khabib you 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 get a guy from relatively hard circumstance and he is it's like he's woven out of iron and the same thing with hackenschmidt he was a guy that just knew he was tougher and meaner and able to go deeper into that well than anyone else he was in front of and something important to remember, and we'll call back to this, is he was a Greco-Roman champion, a weightlifting record holder, and did both during the days of a legitimate competition in wrestling and with lifting before the age of steroids. And we're talking not even steroids. He couldn't even dial up and get a, a delivery of protein powder, creatine, anything like this. He had to do this with a natural diet. And if you look up photos of him, he looks like a mini version of the Incredible Hulk. He is strong, he is shredded, and he did that just with pure genetics and uh, doing the best with his nutritional intake in the late 19th century. Yes, an absolute iron will, sheer determination of uh, the human spirit and perseverance and dedication to a singular goal. And he embodied that and he embodied sort of that hardened spirit of Russia, and I think that's why he was so readily identifiable. He was a local sports star in his youth and gave credit to inheriting the genetics of his mother's side of the family, especially his grandfather, who was a six-foot-tall powerhouse who immigrated from Sweden to Russia. In 1891, he won his first gymnastics competition at the age of 14, and the taste of victory was immediately addictive. He enrolled in an engineer school in Raval, intending to be a technical engineer, you know, a grown-up job for a responsible, respectable person. But exercise enthusiast that he was, his life took a different path after joining the Raval Athletic and Cycling Club. He won several bicycle races, so we're already talking about a man who, before he even learned to wrestle, was winning championships in gymnastics and cycling. Yeah, two of the most telling sports as, as a athletic foundation. Gymnastics, to be a gymnast, you 
muscle for muscle, pound for pound are some of the greatest athletes on the planet, bar none. And to be a cyclist, the, the capacity for, for anaerobic threshold and muscular endurance and to just grit through your legs being completely dead and having that will and determination of an endurance athlete, it speaks volumes to the building blocks of what would be his foundations. He won several bicycle races, but when the summer ended and the cycling competition season ended, he was introduced to weightlifting and Greco-Roman wrestling. Weirdly enough, he didn't much like wrestling when he first tried it. Weightlifting became his first love. At 18, he was 5'8 and weighed around 175 pounds, but he could press a 214-pound dumbbell overhead with one arm. That is a tremendous feat of strength. So that would be kind of like a snatch position, one-arm snatch. I would assume. Yeah, that is that is a tremendous amount of you know um, plyometric output. That's really impressive, especially for his size and his weight. In 1896, his destiny changed forever when wrestler George Lurich came to visit the club. Lurich was an Estonian Russian powerfully built, and had been a competitive professional wrestler for about a year. Lorich issued an open challenge to any of the athletes at the Ravel Athletic and Cycling Club, and Lorich defeated all comers, including Hackenschmidt, but it took more than one match. Their first match ended in a draw, and Lorich won the second one in 17 minutes. Hackenschmidt took the loss very, very personally. He quickly began training wrestling as much as he lifted weights. Think about that, a man who just had maybe a couple of months of loose training in Greco-Roman wrestling, holding his own against a professional. Natural born killer. Talent cannot be denied, it cannot be duplicated. Some people just have a given gift for violence or athletic output. We see it all in manifesting from Michael Phelps in the water to LeBron on the court. And some guys just have that natural ability as a grappler, as a fighter, their, their innate strength. I mean, obviously this guy has a ridiculous physical capacity for explosive strength. He has a mental capacity for, for going into deep water and just being able to suffer and grit more than the other guy. And it makes total sense that he would be the guy to hold his own against a professional and then say, okay, how dare I get beat? Not even take it as I did good job, but like, how dare I get beat? And then he got addicted. He got the competition bug. And he was determined to avenge that loss against Lurich. He trained his ass off, and every time he could for many years, he would challenge Lurich to matches. But Lurich wanted nothing to do with a trained, motivated Hackenschmidt at that point. After Hackenschmidt became world champion and world famous, Lurich would brag constantly about handing him his first defeat, but made damn sure to never be within arm's reach of the Russian lion. Years later, Hackenschmidt challenged Lurich while Lurich was in London. Lurich claimed to be ill and left town the next day. <laughs> the following year, a German wrestler named Fritz Konitzko, I might have mispronounced that, apologize to the ghost of Fritz, Fritz Konitzko if I did so, visited Ravel and beat everyone except Hackenschmidt. They wrestled to a 10-minute draw. Again, somebody who is just getting his toe in the water is now able to hold his own against well-traveled professional wrestlers. And that is... You know, it's like um, like a BJ Penn situation. Yes, if you're absolutely. looking at mar modern MMA, where somebody who finds a sport, 
loves a sport, gets that just insane obsessive dedication to it, and is now punching well above their weight. Yes, the, when the right combination, the perfect storm of that opportunity is granted to someone that just has ridiculous physical aptitude and the perfect psychological makeup to come out of nowhere and be dominant. I also think about like young John Jones when he was coming along, you know, the, the level of, of genius output sometimes cannot be, it can't be denied. That's the one thing we can say, it cannot be denied and Hackenschmidt was a clear example of this. Not too long after that, they were visited by Polish wrestler Ladislav Pitolinski. He beat everyone, including Hackenschmidt this time. But Hack didn't hold a grudge over this loss because Pitolinski taught him a great deal while they were together. Pitolinski later returned to Poland and became the trainer of Stanislaw Zabisko, who became a big star years later and who will reappear in this story later on. In late 1897, he was still employed as an engineer and injured his arm in a non-wrestling or weightlifting related incident. And he was able to get a recommendation to see Dr. Vladislav von Krajewski, who was the founder of the St. Petersburg Athletic and Cycling Club, but more importantly was the physician to the Tsar and had many political and athletic connections. That's never a bad friend to make. No, sometimes it's just as much about who you know, old chap. And it sounds like Hackenschmidt, this might have been his access to getting the foot in the door, as they say. Dr. Von Krajewski saw the injury was not serious, but was very impressed by the physical development, drive, and ideas of this now 20-year-old wrestler. Von Krajewski was a weightlifting enthusiast and advisor to many top athletes in Russia. He invited Hackenschmidt to move to St. Petersburg and live and train with him. He saw a star in the making of this young man, whom he believed could be a world champion in anything he put his mind to. So Hackenschmidt made the move in 1898, where he trained daily with Von Krajewski and learned a great deal about health nutrition and body mechanics. While this may look wild to us today, Back then, it was top-of-the-line training and nutrition. His diet was three-fourths vegetables, one-fourth meat, with very little sugar, carbs, or fruit, no alcohol, and this is a little hard to swallow, both metaphorically and literally, 11 pints of milk every day. Ugh, this is just rough. I mean, I mean, one thing I can say that that diet would definitely ensure proper digestion, nice thorough track, uh, clearance after all that. That is a rough one. But you know, again, these people had such primitive understanding and access to nutrition at that time. I mean, they're doing the best with what they have to work with at the time. I mean, you know, yeah. I'll just say this. I'm glad I didn't have to share a bathroom with them. Yeah, that is rough. Well, at least it was still in the outhouse era, old chap. Oh, yes. During this time, Hackenschmidt set world records in weightlifting. While weighing 198 pounds, he could overhead press 335 pounds. For weightlifters, if you ever do hack squats, you're doing an exercise named after him because he invented it. He could hack squat a record 180 pounds, then in 1902 beat that with 187. Yeah, that is a tremendous uh, telling, telling indicator of his true mark on the world of athletics and weightlifting as a whole. I mean, that is such a fundamental lift and I bet very few people realize that it's named after, after the lion. In 1898, Dr. Von Krajewski entered him into the European Greco-Roman wrestling tournament. The winner would be declared the European champion. At this point, especially in America, there were many grapplers claiming to be world champions without much merit. 
It was just an attempt to legitimize a person, a title, or maybe even a single match. So you'd have wrestlers say, I'm the champion, or promoters saying, he's the champion. And then when they lost, that person would say, now I'm the champion. Meanwhile, the original guy is still claiming to be a champion two states over. It was chaos. Most titles meant nothing. Yeah, that was a, it was a real Wild West free-for-all, and there was no governing body. There was no unification process, and it was really just unsubstantiated claims of being the champion and it, and it was pretty much everyone had the ability to claim because no one was no one was checking checking the ocean for all the all the fake sharks and this tournament was an attempt to legitimize a title and when we talk about these tournaments you may be thinking like one day maybe two no these tournaments took place over the course of 30 to 40 days with many many competitors involved Hackenschmidt plowed through everyone he faced until he took on Bavarian wrestler Michael Hitzler, not Hitler, Hitzler, <laughs> keep that in mind, in the semifinals. Hitzler was 5'6 and weighed 220 pounds, Ooh. built like a barrel. And in Greco-Roman rules, that's a hard build uh. to beat. In 149 matches, he had a record of 79, 35, and 35. And with a build like that, you can defend very easily and it's easy to see why he had so many draws. It took Hack five minutes of hard paced wrestling to beat him. Wow, that is maybe the most telling finish that he has accomplished so far in this in this episode. Because what you are the, to explain the advantage of being what was he five six two hundred and twenty pounds, right? Roughly his opponent. Absolutely. Okay, so that's the equivalent of of being in a pencil breaking contest versus a pencil that is like the the shave is touching the metal of the eraser. It's a it's a game of leverage and upper body mechanics and the shorter this man is built like a fire hydrant that is absolutely the worst body type to have to try to generate the leverage with the rules of Greco. And and he beat him in 5 minutes is just an unbelievably impressive accomplishment because it means that he was just really that dominant. And the time of these matches is also very important, because keep in mind, this is the time where Greco-Roman matches could last hours. That's why these tournaments were spread out so long, because you had to take into consideration a match could go an hour, be a draw, and they'd have to try it again. Yes, and it would be, it's such a tremendous undertaking to have a single match to a fall with no time limit because the other guy might be just playing defense trying to tire you out. You have the different clash of styles. You have to fill your man out and it's an all or nothing. It's, it's kind of like high stakes poker and it's really interesting to see how those manifest. And it gets even more impressive in the finals when he steamrolled George Burgart in two minutes. That's right, two minutes. And at 21 years of age, Hackenschmidt was the European Greco-Roman champion. That is an unbelievably impressive time to finish somebody in Greco-Roman. Greco-Roman is typically more of a war of attrition. And two minutes means that it took him about 30 seconds to realize that he could turn on the gas and get the finish. And he, he accomplished that to win his first major Greco championship. And that shows to win in dominant fashion at such a young age. You know, it's very like Tyson-esque. Exactly. But unfortunately, he had to put his career on hold to do his one-year mandatory army service in Russia. He was given the high-profile assignment of the first lifeguards to the Tsar, which is 
more or less the secret service to the Emperor of Russia. He was discharged after only five months, however, most likely due to Dr. Von Krajewski's recommendation. He had a lot of pull with the royal family. He clearly got him this cushy position and got him out as soon as possible so he could get back to his primary calling in life, wrestling. Hack won the Russian Greco-Roman championship and then began training for another weightlifting championship when he hurt his arm trying to press 286 with pounds with one arm. That is incredible to picture. We're talking about a man the size of a light heavyweight in the UFC picking up a person roughly the size of Hulk Hogan over their head with one hand. That is such a unbelievable feat of strength. And even though he badly damaged that arm, he was still intent on traveling to Paris for the 1899 World Greco-Roman Championship, where he beat his first opponent in 18 seconds. You heard that right, 18 seconds. Next up was French wrestler Auguste Robinette, who lasted four minutes. In his autobiography, he claimed that tournament promoters would always give foreign champions hard early matches, hoping to wear them down, such as Aimable de la Calmette, my French is terrible, pardon the pronunciation, who he claimed was one of the best wrestlers in France at the time. De La Calmette had a record of 84, 18, and 22, and it took 47 minutes for Hackenschmidt to put him away. Well, that is a very impressive uh, showing by the Frenchman because Hackenschmidt is just racking up quick victory after quick victory, mowing these guys down and to, to take him into deep water like that is about the best you can hope for sometimes with a truly great combat artist when they are in their prime or reaching their prime. Up next was a wrestler nearly as strong as Hack himself, Laurent Le Bucaroos. I definitely messed up that name. Apologies to his ghost. A 5'7", 264-pound powerhouse who was deceptively agile for his size. Hack couldn't overcome Bekaru with his injured arm getting worse with every single match. And after a 30-minute draw, Hack withdrew from the tournament. Doctors told him to take a year off to let the arm heal. Did he listen? Of course not. Yes, I, I think he was going to hack right through that doctor recommendation. A man like this is not going to be stopped by something as, as trivial as a physical injury. He's going... Uh, the, the mind of a competitor like this is a steel trap. It only knows how to go forward. Which is great motivation for a champion, bad advice and bad motivation for a human being with a human body. Because in May 1900, he re-injured the arm while powerlifting. So Dr. Von Krajewski gave the 23-year-old a strong talking to about this, and Hack gave up on weightlifting records for the rest of his wrestling career. By June, he felt he was well enough to compete and won the St. Petersburg Wrestling Tournament. He wasn't able to enter the Vienna Tournament, but he did avenge his draw against Laurent de, de la Becaru, who gave up after a one-hour match. In September, he found out that George Lorich, the man who he beat at the start of his career, was performing exhibitions in London. He challenged Lorich, and as I mentioned earlier, Lorich agreed to do the match and then snuck out of town that night. Yes, that, that sounds like the old... Um, meet me in the parking lot and then go out the other door. I mean, he obviously didn't. <laughs> want, he, yeah, he never wanted. He never wanted to give the opportunity to avenge that loss. He never wanted to get let Hackenschmidt get his hands on him. Now that he was fully formed, you know, proficient killer, it would have been. I cannot even imagine the the delight that Hackenschmidt would have taken in just 
dismantling this guy. And I'm sure that it is for the best that he didn't, because who knows what that would have caused if he had just literally ripped somebody's arm off. <laughs> well, he would have had an extra arm. Yes, you know, it happens. He made his return to the Paris tournament for the worst tournament of his life. He claimed he had the flu and competed against doctor's orders. True or not, he lost to Laurent de la Becaru with an arm and head throw in 23 minutes. He finished 1900 at the Hamburg tournament, which had no conclusion because the crowd rioted and the police had to storm the building. I looked as hard as I could. I could not find any more details on that. I'm sorry. Yes, it'd be interesting where he was in the fray, of course, because did, had he not gone out yet? Was it during his match, after his match? The, the, see, this is the kind of, you know, forensic archaeology of professional wrestling that we're doing here. We're having to piece these things together. And by we, I mean you, old chap. <laughs> it's a good thing I have no social life, so I have plenty of time to read. On March 14, 1901, Hackenschmidt faced a personal tragedy when his mentor, Dr. Von Krajewski, died. He had fallen on a bridge in St. Petersburg and broke his leg. His death was most likely caused by a blood clot leading to a stroke. Putting that emotional pain to work, he remained focused on wrestling and dominated the St. Petersburg tournament. The World Greco-Roman Tournament was held in Vienna instead of Paris in 1901, where he beat Belgian wrestler Omer de Bouillon, then Michael Hitzler again, and an American named the Butcher Boy John Peening. The American hardly lived up to his nickname, taking a fall in 30 seconds to hack. Next, Hackenschmidt avenged his loss to Laurent de la Bucaro in 40 minutes. He hacked the butcher and then avenged the loss. It sounds like if I'm piecing together this timeline, he has learned and adapted his style to work around this injury because, you know, being the hard-headed, you know, just idiots that we are as fighters, we never listen. And the second time and the third time you re-injure something, that's where the permanent damage gets done. But that's where the learning and the wisdom occurs because once you can't use that arm anymore, you literally have to learn how to work around it. Then eventually you get that arm back, you're, you're better for it. And, and any great fighter has probably lost the ability to use every one of his limbs at some point. And I'm sure Hack at this point had evolved his style and is only that much more dangerous because he's still in his mid-20s. Exactly. And you'll see a lot of these rematches happening in wrestling, in judo, in jiu-jitsu, in sambo. The top of the food chain pool is always very, very shallow. So you'll have rivals where you'll be competing against them sometimes 10 times a year. Yes. And, and when you really are on the top of your game and when you are near the top of the food chain, Every single loss has such a grand magnitude on the direction of your career. And just as a competitor, you're such a hyper winner at that point that every time you lose, it's a, you know, it really, really unsettles you and stays with you. In the semifinals of the tournament, he took on Paul Pons, who stood six foot four, weighed 252 pounds, and was known as a defensive wrestler. His intent was to use his size to wear down Hackenschmidt. And that plan didn't exactly work, with Hack being a physical powerhouse who never tired at this point in his career. He never stopped attacking and threw Pons at the 79-minute mark. Whew. Yeah, that's a long, uh, that's a long match. Yeah, that's a, that's a full-length film, old chap. That is a full-length feature film. In the finals, he faced off against Halil Adali, a giant Turkish wrestler who had transitioned from Turkish oil wrestling 
Turkish oil wrestling, it's the Turkish national sport where wrestlers are oiled up to remove the strength advantage in competition. The annual Kirkpanir tournament has been ongoing since 1346 and is the oldest continuously running sanctioned sport competition in the world. That is incredibly impressive. And also, it's not surprising that some form of wrestling or grappling is the oldest running sport in the world. Absolutely. Adali was six foot six and weighed almost 300 pounds. Their first match was declared a draw after one hour and 18 minutes. They came back the next day to determine the tournament winner. Hack was able to recover better than his Turkish foe and was the aggressor right from the start. Adali became frustrated and quit the match around the 40 minute mark. A win is still a win. Hack was declared the winner and the Greco-Roman world champion. At this point, he had only been training in Greco-Roman wrestling for four years. Yes, very, very meteoric rise to the top, a la BJ Penn, a la Mike Tyson. And sometimes those once in a generation, once in a lifetime talents can, can pull a feat like this off, rise from their beginning to the absolute apex of the fight game in the, in a short, in this amount of time, four years is really an incredible feat and you, you rarely see such a thing. And it just shows the passion and the desire and the iron will of, of Hackenschmidt. Now the champion, he toured the world doing exhibition matches and also began competing in catches catch can wrestling whose rules are very different from Greco-Roman, more fast-paced, leg attacks, submissions. But Catch's Catch-Can was quickly replacing Greco-Roman as the most popular form of wrestling to the public. It makes sense that he would, he would gravitate towards a more vicious style because what really, the, the primary difference between the two on top of the rule variations is the goal is to in Greco to, to use a body lock to take your opponent down. So ultimately it's a positional based grappling versus catches catch can as in catch a submission faster than your opponent can catch a submission. And it's the art of the kill, it's the art of submission and it's a much more um, deadly style. And it also, he's often the physical underdog in terms of just sheer height and weight and, and a submission style of grappling kind of minimizes the advantage that a bigger opponent has versus traditional Greco rules. Despite branching out in his stylistic competition, he was still the Greco-Roman champion and that was his primary form of competition. At that point, he was the biggest wrestling star in Europe. He had relocated to London and among many challengers, America's Frank Gotch was starting to tap on his shoulder wanting a shot at that belt. He remained undefeated for seven years, which is a crazy accomplishment in any legitimate sport, especially in those days when they were competing nonstop. Yeah, seven years undefeated is truly a remarkable number. I mean, we're talking about at least one match, what, 100 matches a year, two a week, three a week? What do you think? It, I mean, right in those, because those yeah. tournaments would be over the course of a month, he, it sounds like he was on a schedule of like an indie wrestler these days where he was competing every weekend. And in addition to wrestling and doing exhibition matches, he also put on these crazy feats of strength. He would do crazy things like lift a fucking horse <laughs> off the ground. He would tie his feet together and jump over a table. Things that are freakishly, you know, these are things that are, these are freak show 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, these are just secret powers that he figured out he had growing up being Hackenschmidt. Oh, guess what, Mom? I can lift the horse. I had to get the eggs today from the chicken and the horse was in the way. Look what I figured out I can do. Yes, these were circus freak show exhibitions, but hey, people came and saw it. It put his name in the paper. It led to people realizing this guy is, I mean, he was the circus strong man outside of a circus. A true combination of entertainer, performer, and legitimate competitive grappler. On January 30th, 1904, he defended his title against the Terrible Turk, Ahmed Madrali. Now you might be thinking, Terrible Turk? I know that name, and no, this is not the Terrible Turk who drowned after defeating Evan Lewis. It became a popular nickname to vilify Ottoman wrestlers in Europe and American wrestling after that. Madrati was six foot two, 224 pounds, but despised the size advantage, Hack was the stronger of the two. The match took place in London and was such a hot ticket that it disrupted traffic in the city that night. Yeah, that is, that is a tremendous matchup and I'm sure it was billed as a epic, you know, tribal competition of, of East versus West and, and the terrible Turk, the name lives on in infamy. And despite the huge excitement that the city had for this match, they were not treated to an epic battle of grappling giants. Right off the tie-up, Hack powered his way into a hammerlock of Madrali that broke the Turkish wrestler's shoulder. Hack lifted, slammed, and pinned him in just under 45 seconds. Madrali was too injured to come out for a second fall. Woo, yes, that is finishing with violence and style. I mean, to put someone in a hammerlock is to basically put their hand behind their back and then to pick them up using their arm is like trying to pick up a you know the thanksgiving turkey by the wing eventually that thing's just gonna snap and then he put him down on top of said snapped wing and got the pin i i <laughs> that is a rough way to go out yes and while it did further cement his reputation as the best wrestler of his generation Good Lord was buying a ticket to one of his matches a risk. Yeah, very Tyson-esque once again, you know. He paid 50 bucks for the pay-per-view to watch him fight for 90 seconds. But that is the price of witnessing greatness. You know, it's sometimes how long can you hang on because you're in there with the proverbial tip of the lightning bolt. Hack went on to win nearly every tournament from 1900 to 1905 and was never defeated. He only failed to win tournaments when he was injured and had to drop out between rounds. You know, that's the downside of these gigantic tournaments that take place over 30 days. Wrestling, and especially Greco-Roman, is not easy on your body, especially a guy like this who's had a history of injuries. But you know what? It happens. Those really aren't blemishes on his record, just slightly less accomplishments to go onto his biography. He went on to tour America and Australia, defeating all the local challengers, most of which couldn't give him much in the way of competition, and showed off his training and strength to impress onlookers. But people just came out to see the living legend at that point. They wanted to see George Hackenschmidt. Even President Theodore Roosevelt wanted to see this man. Roosevelt was quoted as saying, if I could be anyone else, I'd be George Hackenschmidt. Al Snow's definition of getting over as a professional wrestler is for the people to want to be you. So to say Hackenschmidt was over would be precisely accurate. I mean, he's got the president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, 
said, if I could be any man, I'd want to be Hagrid. And he said that about a Russian man. <laughs> this is, you know, there wasn't really the animosity between the countries at that point, but he was just that impressive. And in the May 5th, 1905 issue of the St. Louis Republic, they had a story about an upcoming match between Hackenschmidt and local wrestler Georges Baptiste. They didn't give the local much of a chance against Hackenschmidt, who had just beaten Tom Jenkins, who you might remember from the Gotch episode. However, in his autobiography, Hack stated that he had contracted malaria right before that match and was so sick he could barely stand. He intended to drop off the tour, but the promoter begged him not to because he had every penny wrapped up in that show. Hack agreed to go on with the match. At the arena, sick as one can be without dying, he heard the promoter trying to calm down Baptiste, who was terrified of Hackenschmidt, and he had to be convinced to get in the ring, not knowing that Hackenschmidt was sick. Hack came back to his dressing room, shook Baptiste's hand, and assured him that he'd take it easy on him in front of the home crowd. <laughs> yeah, talk about a worker, man. That is well played. Tip of the cap. In that appearance, he defeated both Baptiste and yet another terrible Turk, Ali Marula, who seemed to be well-regarded regional grappler and might possibly have been a fake Turk as well. A fake ethnicity in pro wrestling. I don't know if that has ever happened before or since. I have never heard of such a thing that is preposterous beyond all compare. Nay, I say, there has never been such a scam played in the professional wrestling business. He walked through Baptiste, pinning him three times in 12 minutes. Keep in mind, he did this with malaria. It took him six minutes to pin Marula after that. Both felt disappointing to Hack, who knew he could have done it much faster if he hadn't been sick. The crowd was fine with the short matches. They knew at this point that few men, if anyone, could stand up to Hackenschmidt. And again, they were just happy to see this man in person. Well, they're lucky he took it easy on him. I'll say that. They got 12 minutes out of the man. He's a, you know, that's a, talk about carrying the hometown boy. Despite fan appreciation and press fawning over him, Hackenschmidt left America with a bitter taste in his mouth. He was not impressed with American wrestling as a whole, even though he did admire certain American wrestlers. He was bombarded by promoters wanting him to do worked matches, which disgusted him. In an interview with the Rock Island Argus in September 1905, Hackenschmidt stated, One thing I could not understand is the faking methods of some of the wrestlers. Wherever I went to see a match, I was confronted by a lot of schemers who made all sorts of unsportsmanlike propositions to me. When they saw that I was not a faker, they avoided me and began to say unkind things about me. I guess I became unpopular with some of them, but I don't care. I have the better elements on my side. Well, you know, that speaks to the true competitive nature of Hackenschmidt, but man, what a swerve he could have made if he had gone in on a, gone in on a hustle. He was too honorable for, uh, for things like that. And this is something I like touching on. People seem to be under the impression that everyone thought pro wrestling was 100% legitimate across the board until the 90s when Vince McMahon pulled back the curtain. People are outraged. You get the, it's still real to me, or it was real back in these days. People knew the sport wasn't 100% on the up and up. Same with boxing, same with many sports, going back to the 1800s. Yes, when the, the bottom line is professional sports more than even, nowadays we have things in place like corporate sponsors and, and mainstream media coverage. But at the time, these things were financed and, and ran and propagated by, you know, organized crime primarily and gambling. These were the, the pillars of what 
facilitated professional sports at the turn of the century. And um, there, the fix was in a lot of the times. It was presented as a legitimate competition, but it was not always legitimate. And it wasn't fixed for the sake of entertainment. It wasn't fixed for the sake of storylines. Yeah. It was fixed for the reason of betting, bigger paydays. It was a scam, a beautiful, beautiful scam, but a scam nonetheless. One American wrestler that did not disappoint him, however, was longtime Frank Gotch nemesis Tom Jenkins. They met on May 5th, 1905 at Madison Square Garden. Jenkins was as game as anyone at that point, but still lost a hack in two straight falls, though it took over an hour to do so. And again, if you remember from the last episode, Tom Jenkins was an amazing catch-as-catch-can wrestler, and very few people could give him even a draw, and he had nothing. He had nothing in the offense for the Russian Lion. In attendance was Frank Gotch, the American champion, and he got up and he challenged the winner of the match. But Hack was already scheduled for matches back in Europe, so it would take another three years before Frank Gotch finally got his match against the Russian Lion. And that's where we're going to leave you for today. We, are, we have now set the stage between the last two matches for the greatest, highly anticipated, most famous legitimate pro wrestling matches of all time. And next time, we're going to explore what happened in those matches, what happened between them, what led up to them, and what were the long-term consequences of these contests. And I'm excited to talk about that. I cannot wait to get into the get into the mire and the muck of the matter. It's it, This is true nations colliding. These are two all-time greats in their prime meeting all of the gold on the line and I can't wait to get into get into Hack versus Gotch. It is truly two titans of the sport meeting in one ring and gosh darn it if it's not going to be a lot of fun to talk about. So in the meantime, thank you for listening. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check out our YouTube where I've started dropping some mini episodes of just little side stories that don't quite fit into here. And until next time, I don't, know, I don't know where I was going with that. Yeah, no, you had me in suspense, so I love the cliffhanger. I'm waiting. Yes, yeah, no, tremendous. Goodbye to the people. Hey.